Good afternoon and welcome. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for being with us. I appreciate it. Today it's midday on medicine. My first guest is Dr. Jeremy Green, a physician and medical historian on the faculty of the Johns Hopkins University and Medical School. His new book chronicles the evolution of telemedicine. He makes the case that at various stages along the way of that evolution, telemedicine was seen as a panacea that was going to expand access and diminish disparities in the delivery of health care. But those promises remain promises largely unfulfilled. It's called The Doctor Who Wasn't There, Technology, History, and the Limits of Telehealth. So listeners, what's your experience with telehealth? Have you met with a doctor over video chat or on the phone? Have you ever tried to have a doctor's visit that way and found that they that it didn't work, that there were problems? Give us a call. Let us know what your experience has been. 410-662-8780 or email midday at wipr.org. You can tweet us at midday. WIPR. Dr. Jeremy Green is the William H. Welch Professor of Medicine and History of Medicine and the Director of the Department of the History of Medicine at Johns Hopkins. He's also the Director of the Center for Medical Humanities and Social Medicine, and he joins me here in Studio A. Jeremy, welcome. It's good to talk to you. Oh, it's great to be here today, Tom. Thanks for having me here. And congratulations on this book. I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, it's a, as a layperson uh, who's out of the medical field, uh, I learned an awful lot, but it's beautifully written and uh, it's packed full of interesting stuff. Um, One of the central tenets has to do with the fact that telemedicine was supposed to increase access. Obviously, in rural areas, for example, where there isn't a hospital close by or a medical center close by, or even in uh, cities like ours, in which there are a number of neighborhoods that are, um, you know, medical deserts, uh, like we have food deserts. There's there's no easily accessible grocery store. It's, lots of times, there's no easily accessible uh, clinic. Um, but but you make the point that uh, in many ways um, that has not happened. Um, overall, I mean, just with the 30,000-foot view, why do you think that is? Why hasn't it solved this problem of access? So um, thanks again for, for bringing out the central question of the book, right, which is this promissory note that is written behind this, you know, the attractions of medical technologies, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, telemedical systems on uh, smartphones or in, you know, other kinds of digital health applications or whether we're talking about earlier forms with cable television or even back to the invention of the telephone, which, you know, in the late 19th century was predicted to really remove barriers of geographical access to specialists across the country in medicine. Um, I think the 10,000-foot message is that it's not that these technologies can't help remove barriers to access. It's that the faith that the technology by itself will actually work to undo disparities in access to health care is a misplaced faith, that we could be doing a much better job of ensuring that telehealth technologies really reduce barriers to healthcare in this country, but we haven't done so. So it's that the technology plus the will to make it actually work to improve healthcare for all is what we need. You make an interesting comparison to Sesame Street, which did largely succeed in improving early childhood education through television, through, you know, a tele platform. Um, What did Sesame Street do differently than 
telemedicine. Why did Sesame Street kind of work and telemedicine still has challenges? Yeah, so I found myself surprised at the end of the research for this book project, thinking hard about Sesame Street, right? Which I, which I thought hard about as a, as a very young child as well. You know, I was one of these suburban kids who, you know, uh, you know, you know, my, my mom sat me down and watched Sesame Street with me. And the interesting thing about that observation is that, you know, I, as, you know, the child of a doctor in a, in a leafy green suburb in New Jersey with an excellent public school system, was not the intended target for Sesame Street when Sesame Street was created. Now, the proposal around Sesame Street, you know, was made roughly the same time that the first proposals to use cable television to increase access to healthcare through telemedicine programs were made in the, in the, in the 60s. And, um, you know, one of the differences between these two projects, and the book traces this moment in the 60s and in the 70s in which there's a tremendous enthusiasm that cable television and telemedical systems built around this are just going to help to eliminate disparities in healthcare access in rural regions, right? And as you pointed out in, in what were then being called, you know, inner city regions, this is very much this moment after white flight from urban centers that was being called, you know, ghetto medicine. And there's a whole history of how the television was a technology that could improve access in inner city areas as well. And so just as Sesame Street was created to use a new communications technology of television, right, to increase um, access to early childhood developmental learning, right, which was seen to be a steep area of disparity, right, um, so too was, was telemedicine supposed to do the same thing with access to primary health care. And as you might imagine, um, there was a lot of concern around Sesame Street in the early years. So, well, what if this is an act, actually an effective intervention, but then reaches the wrong people, right? What if, what if Sesame Street works, but the folks who are watching Sesame Street are more like me as a kid, right? Than, um, than uh, you know, especially uh, you know, black, brown, Latinx audiences living in inner city areas for whom the show was actually designed. Um, and so there was concern initially actually looked like Sesame Street was going in that direction. That, um, and so Sesame Street had a feedback loop in which it absorbed critic, you know, critiques of whether it was actually reaching its intended argument, uh, audiences, whether the interface was working, what needed to be done to change it so that it would. And they built this back into the program. So the history of Sesame Street on one level is a history of, of a dedicated group of people trying to use a technology to reduce barriers, who then every time a you know a, a, a group of, of critics suggested that they weren't reaching at their intended audience, worked to transform it, brought those critics into the planning process, and then sought to continuously make this technology more and more available. And you know, there's it's been incredibly detailed study of the efficacy of Sesame Street, but it really did actually have an impact on its intended audiences. Now, if you take telemedicine, on the other hand, what you see are these kind of broad gestures that this technology is going to improve access to healthcare. Demonstration projects that are done, for example, in Harlem um, with Mount Sinai Hospital, in, um, in the west side of Chicago with the University of Chicago, um, and in rural areas, all of which show that actually telehealth has the potential, these are studies done in the early 70s, to really increase the access to healthcare for people who do not have you know, who, who face significant barriers getting it. Um, once, the, once those demonstration projects are done, though, the effort to make sure that telehealth technologies are consistently being used to improve access just seems to melt away. 
such that um, when we look at the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, when so many of us who hadn't necessarily had encounters with telehealth, right, suddenly found ourselves as telepatients. And I suddenly found myself a telepatient for the first time in the early pandemic. I also found myself a teledoctor for the first time because my, my, the community health center that I work at in East Baltimore, the East Baltimore Medical Center, we had to shut our doors and effectively only see people through televisits. And when that happened, um, I as a provider started noticing that um, you know, older patients, patients living below the poverty line, um, patients who were black or, or, or Latinx, um, had a much, much, much lower probability of actually being seen and getting access to the telehealth suite that we had available than white middle class yeah, patients. On the, one, on the one hand, some things improved. Um, Medicare started paying for televisits, which they had never paid for before. Yep. And now they, they've scaled that back, you know, and, and people are saying, wait a minute, this telehealth thing that we figured out during the COVID pandemic was a pretty good idea in a lot of ways, in a lot of situations. So, you know, maybe we should rethink that. But as you say, um, the disparities are not colorblind. They affect it. And, we, you know, you, you, you note that as 85% of Americans now have access to a cell phone and the internet. But that 15% that doesn't, uh, we found that the kids trying to go to school remotely, the folks trying to access uh, health care rem- remotely, uh, had a very difficult time. And you talk about uh, a doctor, a guy named John Norman, who was one of the few black physicians to graduate from the Harvard Medical School way back in the day, in the 60s and uh, the early 70s. Um, he actually assembled a group of physicians and people who ran journals and people who ran medical schools uh, to try to, you know, move the needle uh, in terms of of black access to medical school. And we're going to talk about that later in this program because Morgan State is uh, planning a a medical school uh, on their campus. But uh, moving that needle on racism and, and racial inequality in the medical field has been a huge challenge that has just not begun to be met. I, I agree, and, I, and, and I'm glad to hear the conversation happening later today about Morgan State. There's so many different levels to talk about access, equality, um, and how to remove barriers to access to care and quality care in this country. And I think part of what our conversation loops back around, whether it's Sesame Street or whether it's you know telehealth over cable TV in the 70s, or whether it's the kinds of digital platforms we have today, is you know to what extent technology is a fix right, for our social problems. And there's a group of folks, you know, historians of science, medicine, technology like me or other people who do social studies of technology that will, you know, say, well, you know, we should be really wary of the technological fix when we're dealing with entrenched social problems. Why why should we believe that something like cable television or telehealth is really going to undo the, the these potent structural determinants that really layer in, you know, know, centuries of entrenched racism and inequitable distributions of access to housing, employment, and education, you know, how is telemedicine going to fix that? But what's so interesting about looking at what John Norman did back in the late 60s when he pulled together this conference, and Norman was a Harvard-trained cardiothoracic surgeon, um, and this conference was on what was called then Medicine in the Ghetto. That was the title of the book. Um, and many of the terms we wouldn't use in exactly the same way these days. But Norman was trying to focus attention, pulling together medical school deans um, and, uh, and you know, 
of folks who had done, been doing work in the sort of what was not yet called health disparities research, but really putting together the platform of documenting inequity of access to health care, um, especially along racial lines, but also in terms of rural areas of isolation, um, other ethnic and economic forms of, of dispossession, and trying to say, well, what can you do to undo the ghettoization of healthcare access in American life? Um, and the question of technology really comes up in that clinic, both both with critics saying you can't solve this problem with technology, but then also many deeply involved in it say, well, technology forms a key starting point of how we actually mobilize interest in the, in the problem. So someone who's at that conference, um, John Holloman, another very important uh, black physician and civil rights activist of the late 1960s. Holloman, among others, became the, uh, he was practiced in New York. He um, trained at Howard. He was, uh, no, sorry, he, he, he um, he became the head of the Harlem um, Hospital Board and he head of uh, planning of public hospitals in New York City. He was also a civil rights activist who pointed out in 1968 that the American Medical Association still uh, excluded African-American physicians from memberships by allowing state medical associations to bar membership based on race. Remember, this is the reason that the National Medical Association gets formed, is that the American Medical Association, which has comprised all these boards of states that exclude black doctors, right? So Holloman is there, understands, has a keen awareness of the way that racism, structural racism functions in American society on many different levels, but still says, you know this thing, telemedicine, this could really help us, right? So if we're really interested in undoing health disparities, we have to take all the tools that are available to us and why not use this technology, right, to actually short circuit this entrenched problem of structural racism and access to healthcare. But I think what Holloman knew right then at that moment is that the technology alone is never gonna solve the problem. But we can't ignore the possibility of using the technology yeah. as a tool. It's got to be done in concert with political will, with uh, you know government funding, with with uh, you know an understanding that technology you know has its limits, as you say in your title, the doctor who wasn't there. Technology, History, and the Limits of Telehealth. That's the book we're talking about with my guest, Jeremy Green, from Johns Hopkins. And the other thing that uh, fascinated me about um, the, how you frame this is that uh, the, the notion of telemedicine, which was uh, termed by a, or coined by a, a guy from Boston, a guy named Dr. Kirby, I guess, uh, 50 years ago, um, at the invention of the telephone, Alexander Graham Bell in the late 1880s, within three or four years of the invention of the phone, people started saying, oh, this has all sorts of applications to medicine. Um, and so you, you talk about telemedicine, which I think right now most people would say, oh, that means a video chat with your doctor. Um, but it's the telephone. You talk about radio. You talk about television. And then finally, computers as, as these broad uh, areas where, you know, electronic technology uh, of some sort has, has played a role. Um, it, it's a broad field. And it's one that a lot of companies and, and the technologists uh, that invented these devices um, saw great financial potential in. I mean, we have big companies like RCA and Magnavox, you know, making uh, devices and, and, and things that, that, that they thought there's a market here. So there, there was a, always a financial incentive uh, in, in these things. And you write that the medium uh, is never, the medium of care is never neutral. There's all sorts of there's all sorts of people with agendas uh, as these mediums of care are developed. Um, and that has affected its evolution as well. 
So I've become very interested in how care is always mediated, right? And so we might say, well, there's there's this real doctoring that we do when I'm in a clinic or when I'm in a hospital, you know, next to a patient and there's no electronic interface between us. But even that, of course, is is mediated, right? Like we've built the clinic in a certain way that, you know, everyone who's sat on a, a table in an in a, in a exam room with a sort of a Johnny that's open at the back, you know, waiting for a doctor to come in from the hallway, we know that the actually even the way that that interaction has been designed is actually heavily mediated, right? Or, or the, when we think back to the charts that used to be bound in paper, that those charts were written in a certain way. They're structured to privilege certain kinds of information, right? So that the way in which we design how we communicate medically, both between medical providers through a chart and how we design spaces for doctors and patients or other caregivers to communicate is structured in a way that privileges some forms of information and some voices over others. And, you know, I'm a historian. Um, I, I largely traffic in, you know, the 20th century. This book goes back to the late 19th century. I have colleagues who are, you know, medieval and early modern historians who could dismiss me as sort of like a journalist, right? Like, like you know, you're barely a historian given how... how Never how want you, to be dismissed <laughs> as one of those. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and yet, um, it's interesting in the sense, if you go back further, like if you look at early modern Europe... Um, most interactions between patients and physicians, and these are physicians who are sort of have the university degree, there's many other possible healers in the early modern landscape, a lot of them take place by letter. So that this idea that the physical exam and the doctor being there with a patient is something which really takes on primacy, in, in, at least in European and in American medicine, in the, um, the 19th century. So this mediated form of medicine was very common. And in fact, if you look at paintings of early modern physicians, um, they didn't wear white coats. That came much later, right? They didn't have stethoscopes. Those aren't invented till the early 19th century. And they didn't have pagers, which I think become iconic of physicians in the late 20th century with radio technologies. But they oftentimes had these strange glass vessels. Maybe you've seen them. Um, and they're, they're uroscopy flasks because one of the things that doctors did was to look at the urine of a patient was seen as diagnostic. So for a lot of early modern European medicine involved patients writing letters describing their symptoms, um, you know, pissing in a jar and then sending that to the physician. And, and so, so everything was mediated in that basis. Yeah. <laughs> so we're dealing with how successive media reshape those structures of power, right? The telephone changed things, right? The, the pager changed things. The computer system is changing things right now in ways we're still struggling to comprehend. At any moment, they could liberate and equalize the power between doctor and patient or go in the other direction. And you're right that uh, as of the beginning of uh, the 21st century, 20-some years ago, uh, one out of every four interactions between patients and doctors takes place now on the telephone. Interesting. The book is called The Doctor Who Wasn't There, Technology, History, and the Limits of Telehealth. Dr. Jeremy Green is a physician and medical historian. We'll have more with Dr. Green after a quick break. You can join us at 410-662-8780. You can email us midday at wipr.org. You can tweet us at midday WIPR. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. You're listening to Your Public Radio, 88.1 WYPR. 
And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up tomorrow on our show, analysis of President Biden's approach to the problems at the border and in states across the country as an influx of immigrants continues to surge to record levels. Franco Ordonez of NPR and Chris Vignaraja of Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service will join me tomorrow on Midday to talk about immigration. If you've just joined us today, we're talking about the history of telemedicine with Dr. Jeremy Green of Johns Hopkins University. His new book is called The Doctor Who Wasn't There, Technology, History, and the Limits of Telehealth. Our number, 410-662-8780. Our email, midday at wipr.org. And you can tweet us at midday WIPR. Let's go to the phones. We have Sean on the line from Baltimore. Welcome to Midday with Dr. Green. Hi. Thank you for having me. And what's your comment? Um, so I recently went to Franklin Square's emergency room, and my triage doctor was actually a telehealth doctor. Um, I did not see a real doctor until I was discharged. Um, they really just kind of summed everything up to COVID when it wasn't. Um, and they ended up missing something. My primary care saw the next day and I needed an MRI. So um, I just do wonder if the telehealth doctor was actually there and I saw a doctor before I was discharged 11 hours later, they might've caught it sooner. Interesting. All right. Well, thank you for that uh, call, Sean. I certainly hope you're okay. That's interesting, Jeremy Green, that there would be a a video chat while he's in the emergency room at a hospital. It's a it's a that's a fascinating question. And Sean, I hope that you're doing well and and you're receiving the care that that you need. I, I you know we saw this early in COVID, where one of the things where telehealth opened up a possibility that hadn't been considered before is how to even operate basic functions in the hospital when all of our interactions are being re-scrutinized through the isolation necessary for COVID precautions. And part of what Sean is suggesting is, on the one hand, what gets missed in these interactions, right? And we're all very conscious that, that there's two different kinds of errors that can happen around telehealth. On the one hand, there's this fear that the virtual presence is substandard to real presence in a way that's crucial and a diagnostic piece of information gets missed and you get substandard care. On the other hand, there's also a fear that, well, what if it is actually good enough, but because, say, talking on a telephone isn't considered to be a real visit, um, these forms of mediated care don't get supported through our healthcare system, and people who could get meaningful access to care by, say, telephone-only, you know, you know, visits, uh, don't get access at all. Um, and I, you know. Sean raises a further question, which is, well, what happens when the state of emergency is no longer emergency, but rules that had gotten in place during the emergency, the idea that when you go to an emergency department, you don't necessarily get to see a physician in person, you get to see someone on a screen, even though you're there in this inpatient facility because of this emergency that is no longer an emergency in the same way. So Sean's story is asking, well, is this healthcare institution, you know, falsely using like kind of bringing in this cheaper m- mode of care um, out of convenience, you know. And, yeah. so, so and you, th- even, you even quote a study that says there are some patients who found that it was easier uh, and they, they were more relaxed speaking to their physician 
over a telephone connection or a, a TV connection rather than in person. That's you know that dynamic. You know, you mentioned that you're sitting there with a with a bathrobe or whatever they call it that's open in the back. The Johnny, you yeah. know, the Johnny, uh, and you're waiting for the doctor, and the doctor comes in, and you know he or she is always busier than you are at that moment, and uh, you know it, there's a dynamic, there's a, a power dynamic, and a and a wisdom dynamic that is that is always present. Maybe that is attenuated a little bit when you're talking to somebody on a TV screen. And, and you know, there's there's the comfort that can work. And then there's also this question of, well, like, telestroke is one of the more successful areas of telehealth care, which is to say there's a crucial decision that needs to be made early in the diagnosis of someone who's just suffered a stroke, which has to do with a very powerful medicine called a thrombolytic. You know, should the emergency doctor or emergency medicine nurses administer this, this, this very potent medicine that could undo clots if they're happening? But... There's risks, and so if the, if there's not clearly a stroke there, or if the patient doesn't meet certain criteria, this drug can be more harmful than beneficial. And you can't necessarily get a neurologist into all of the emergency departments, but if you can actually have a televised exam, and I think the database behind this is really substantial, that you can do a good enough neurological exam over television to make that key decision. And so what might, you know, the alternative to have a patient get transported a long distance to somewhere where there is a neurologist, right, could actually result in much, much worse outcomes. So the real challenge is figuring out what is gained and what is lost by these mediated interactions through screens. The Doctor Who Wasn't There, Technology, History, and the Limits of Telehealth. That's the name of Jeremy Green's new book, 410-662-8780, our email midday at wipr.org. You can tweet us as well. Um, I have a friend, Dr. Miho Tanaka. She appears on the show all the time. She's an orthopedic surgeon, uh, and she is developing standards for telehealth visits uh, having to do with orthopedic injuries. And it has to do with, you know, having the patients put the camera in a particular place so that physicians are seeing the same angle and the same lighting, uh, you know, from one patient to the next so that they have a sort of standard, uh, you know, image that they can they can base, okay, well, this this knee looks like, you know, the the 4,000 other knees I've seen, but if the lighting is different and if the angle is different, uh, it's a bit, uh, you know, it, it would change, it could potentially change the diagnosis. So physicians certainly are thinking about this. <clears throat> um, and uh, it also, you bring up the, the, the notion of access. Uh, when the pager became uh, that, you know, appendage to every physician's uh, belt, um, there were all sorts of complaints even way before the pager. I mean, there's, you quote one doctor in the late 1900s complaining, well, now we have, you know, uh, telegraph and people bothering us, you know, all sorts of other ways. Uh, and now with this telephone thing, this new contraption, we'll, we'll never get any leisure time. We'll never get any days off. We are constantly uh, available and constantly accountable. Um, that is still an issue with physicians. I mean, it's it's difficult being a doc these days uh, in in many circumstances. Uh, these are these are fascinating questions, and I, I I love your mentioning what uh, what your friend Dr. Tanaka is working on because this idea of standardizing of you. I'll tell you a little story. So when I, you know, I, I've been a telepatient as well, and you know, I'm a I'm a kind of a fair skinned, fair haired white guy with some moles on me, and I'm going to need to see a dermatologist regularly to make sure they're they're okay, right? That I don't have skin cancer. And I had a dermatology visit um, <laughs> in the middle of the first year of the pandemic, which was remote. And I was instructed basically to hold my my 
smartphone out and basically like scan it over my whole body. And so I basically was standing outside, you know, you know, trying to show <laughs> as, as much skin as I could of my whole body moving the cell phone around me. It didn't work at all. I mean, it was just sort of like, oy vey. Like, mm. like what, what, what kind mm. of a approach to a clinical interaction is this? And I feel like had there been some more standard way to do it, like this was dealing with the discomfort of being in a new medium in which dermatologists didn't really know how to figure this out with their patients yet. And as, as, your, as your colleague is pointing out, as Dr. Naka is pointing out, well, we can find a way to adapt to this new medium and standardize it and get to this point where we're all comfortable. But that's partly how media function, right? Like when a phone rings, you know now to pick it up and say hello or say, you know, hello, this is Tom or Tom here, right? And you didn't know that immediately. It's become natural, right? Some would say, and the, the media historian Lisa Gittleman has a wonderful book about this, that it's testament to the extreme power that telephones have in our life, that it's so scripted into our life that we don't need to think about it. And it may be that telehealth reaches that point once the work of the Dr. Tanakas are done. But the dermatologists I was seeing, like, we hadn't gotten there yet. And we all felt that awkwardness. Yeah, right? and certain diagnoses are going to be easier to make, you know, in a telehealth situation and others are not, obviously. And, uh, you know, I mean, now we have telephones, but we, we don't even know anybody's number anymore. It, it, <laughs> it's all on speed dial. And, and this is this fading aspect, right, of sort of the, the media that we've forgotten about, right? That um, So... Uh, and this is, you know, this is countless, you know, forms of fascination among, you know, sort of younger generations of older media, like, like, you know, the resurgence of vinyl, uh, this sort of this media that is no longer necessary in its form, and then takes almost like a, a like this attraction and this aura and this fetish. But I want to get back to the point you're making about ever accessibility, because. I think, yes, it's tough to be a doctor in that our sort of accountability has been continuously accelerated. First, you know, with the invention of the telephone, and then the pager gave sort of even more accessibility. And there's a funny process, and I, I detail it in the book, of how, you know, telephones are sold to doctors at first as things that will help build their convenience. And then doctors by the early 20th century are just cursing telephones as being like instruments of the devil. There are these Marxist accounts by physicians about how telephones have effectively made physicians into these self-commodified forms and we no longer control our own time. And then when radio pages come out, they're, they're, they're marketed to the physician in very similar ways. And a lot of the advertisements, and Motorola let me into their archives out in, out in Chicagoland. It was a, fascinating to see how Motorola, which really effectively invented the pager and dominated the pager markets until they finally sold their unit off to Google in the early 21st century, they, they you know, the physician was a key figure for selling the concept of the pager to anybody. And the way it was sold to pagers, the physicians was saying, hey, listen, you can be out on the golf course um, and, you know, you know you'll get the call when you need to. And so you get more leisure time. And these forms of access were seen as giving doctors more freedom and more leisure. But many historians of technology know that lots of labor-saving devices are sold as actually producing leisure, but actually they do exactly the opposite. Ruth Schwartz Cowan, a historian of, at Penn, wrote this book called More Work for Mother, in which he details how a number of labor-saving devices around the home just increase the sort of expectations of cleanliness for American women. And so, you know, this this book could have been called More Work for Doctor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and anybody who's ever spent any time on the line with the IT department knows that, you know, your phone and your computer don't always save you a whole lot of time. Let's try to sneak in one or two more calls before we have to uh, take a break. To, uh, let's go to Clarence, who's on the line. Welcome to Midday with Dr. Green. Hey, thanks for taking the call. Um, opinion, doctor, given that we've entered this era of pandemics like COVID-19, 
Um, all arg- other arguments and considerations set aside, do you feel as though that this should be developed full- fully as a necessary tool to, you know, when we're under attack for, from a virus that spreads easily and is deadly, should we develop this as a necessary tool to its fullest extension to prevent death and the spread of the next pandemic that may or may not come along? Thank you. Yeah, thanks for that question. I, I think that as much as we keep talking about what it means to try to get back to normal after the pandemic, and, you know, we're not there yet, not not really post-pandemic yet, um, we also recognize that we can't undo um, certain elements of our life that we've all learned in the pandemic. Like the amount of Zoom calls that have now become a normal part of business interaction are not going to go away just because we can do in-person interactions. And I think you raise a very good point because the usefulness of telehealth has become so apparent on so many different levels, on both on individuals and in clinics and in hospitals, that uh, that I, I think we're we're emerging not back in a fully in-person health system, but in a hybrid system. And my own clinic now is hybrid. Like if I, I just came out of my clinic just before um, coming over here to the radio station and, you know, I, I will see patients in clinic that will be in person, but some of my visits will be telehealth precisely for this reason, because this person may be infectious and contagious and actually keeping them away from other people is for everybody's, um, you know, uh, can do best. So the short answer is yes, I've given you a longer answer, but I think we are going to continue to work with telehealth for exactly this reason. So we're almost out of time. Let me ask you one more question about electronic medical records, because you write a lot about it in the book. The physicians that I know can't stand them. They go crazy about it. Um, it's more work, not less. Uh, it, you know, maybe the records are portable, but there's a, big, uh, there's a big sacrifice to get to that point. Do you see electronic medical records improving, the technology improving, and the acceptance among physicians also improving? Uh, any time in the near future. Yeah, that's such an important question, Tom. And, you know, electronic medical records are, uh, you know, such a source of disquiet and burnout among physicians these days, not only individually, but also structurally. There's many health systems that even trying to deal with the financial costs of implementing an electronic medical record has bankrupted several, you know, local hospitals and health systems. Um, And, uh, you know, patients have much less of a problem with the electronic medical record than physicians do. And I think part of the problem, you see this all the way back from the first electronic medical records back in the 1960s, that physicians feel that these systems are designed for other purposes, like largely for billing purposes, and not with the needs of either the physician or the patient in mind. Now, I think there's been multiple iterations of how to do this, and and I would say it's an open space in which one could design an electronic health record that actually brought the doctor and patient closer. And, and um, you know, for example, but if it hasn't ins- happened yet. If instead of having a screen that I looked at instead of looking at you, so all you saw was the back of my head, if I had something on a tablet that was on the table here in front of us, and I could look you in the eye while also checking it. So the design of the interface is really what matters here. And I think the problem is that doctors and patients have had much less of a say in how these things are designed. So it's another governance question, right? Electronic health records make all these promises. We don't hold them necessarily accountable. What does it take to insist that the design works for all those who should benefit from it? It's fascinating stuff, and it's a terrific read. Dr. Jeremy Green, his new book is called The Doctor Who Wasn't There, Technology, History, and the Limits 
of telehealth. Well, thanks and congratulations on the book and thanks for uh, for coming in. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me here today, Tom. It's always a pleasure. Coming up, Midday on Medicine continues with a conversation about a proposed medical school at Morgan State University. That conversation on the other side of a quick break. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. This is your public radio, 881 WYPR.